Hey, you're listening to the Sub Club Podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Hello, I'm your host, David Barnard, and with me today, Revenue Cat CEO Jacob Hiding. Our guest today is Phil Schwartz, partner at Corazon Capital, a leading Chicago-based venture firm investing in early-stage tech companies. Prior to joining Corazon, Phil served as chief marketing officer at Tinder during the rollout of subscriptions. He was also previously head of growth initiatives at Match Group. On the podcast, we talk with Phil about the thesis behind Tinder's monetization strategy, the importance of product differentiation, and why some companies shouldn't use subscriptions. Hey, Phil, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Hey, guys, thank you for having me. So I'm super excited to talk about your role as an investor in seed stage companies at Cortisone Capital. But I think our audience would be pretty frustrated with me if I didn't ask you a few questions on Tinder before we get to that, because you were at Tinder in such a pivotal time and in such a pivotal role at Tinder. Uh, so I just want to kick things off. And even before you joined, uh, you have a lot of insight into kind of the creation of Tinder as a product. So I'd love to hear, hear kind of your perspective on the creation of the product and then kind of at what point you joined into that story. Uh, I'm happy to, to go through it all. And I think I'm, I, I may still be catching up on sleep from those years. So so you'll, you'll bear with me. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, I, for context, by the way, I mean, I, you know, I lived in Chicago at the time, Tinder obviously based in Los Angeles. And so I flew back and forth every week for for years, uh, which wow. is, you know, fun, which is what it is. Yeah. Uh, no one likes that. But American Airlines in any event. So Tinder, I, I think if we step back a little bit and think about the landscape of online dating, just for people that haven't haven't studied it a ton, there's really sort of like three eras of online dating. The original era is Match Group, a pay to communicate platform, meaning you you had to pay something to to do really do anything on it. That is a 24, 25 year old internet consumer internet business at this point, which is, you know, rare air. Like there's not many of those mm. that exist. Craigslist and them. <laughs> Effectively, <laughs> right? Effectively. So, um, you know, Match, but Match clearly one of the early plays. And there were there were uh, some others along the way, Harmony being one of those. But, you know, Match became sort of the the biggest. Many years later, my now partner at Corazon Capital, Sam Yegan, and a, a series of other folks created OkCupid. And OkCupid was a free to communicate platform. So that was, you know, that was uh, many years after Match was created in sort of like the web one era. That broke the mold. By the way, that was before freemium businesses were really a thing. And, mm, you know, everybody yeah. obviously questioned, could you create how, how in the world are you going to communicate against this? Especially for dating, match? Right? Especially for dating. And really for anything. I mean, at that point, it was it was early days. I mean, you're talking, you know, mid 2000s. So yeah. uh, so they create OkCupid and build it. It becomes um, certainly the the biggest breakout outside of of match and OkCupid eventually gets acquired by Match. Um, Sam becomes CEO of Match Group years later. Tinder is sort of the the beginning of the wave of the third era, which really is consumer mobile um, and a continuation, I think, of what OkCupid created, which is a, just this continuation of the freemium platform. So, you know, you had Match pay to communicate, you had OkCupid, Web1, uh, really, you know, free to communicate. And then you had Tinder come along that is mobile and free. And that required Tinder being sort of mobile and really 
what you know what Tinder did beautifully, we can go into this more, is go after a demographic that really had never been addressed with online dating before. Match was sort of an older demographic, 35 plus. OkCupid brought that down a little bit, you know, more in the like the 30 plus, you know, world. But Tinder, you know, really went after the 18 to 24 demo and, and 24 to 30, but 18 to 24, especially in a way that nobody else really had. And so in order to do that, you had to kind of invent a couple things. And what Tinder, what the what the early folks at Tinder did, and I think it was a beautifully conceived, and Tinder, for, by the way, for all its flaws, and there are plenty, <laughs> the, the, the secret of Tinder is that it actually does work. Like it's, it's, it's actually, and, and by the way, I, not for everybody, it fails plenty of times, but it actually is a very efficient way to meet someone. And I still get, and I don't deserve any of this, by the way, I want to make that clear. I still get thanked by people. I still meet Tinder babies. I mean, it's like a <laughs> remarkable place to spend time because of the, the meaningful impact it might have on somebody's life. So, but the, the product was beautifully designed. And what, what Tinder did was they obviously invented the swipe that we now know is sort mm -hmm. of the paradigm that, it, that the modern mobile apps use, swiping left and right. Again, you can argue about the flaws in that. And again, there are some, but I think it, it actually, in many respects, represents oh, I don't the way know. That I think I, I, maybe Hot or Not invented that, actually. I mean, I guess it wasn't swiping. But <laughs> right. The, there was uh, no swiping, but Hot or Not. Like, <laughs> but yes, the prior exactly. art was there. <laughs> no, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, what that did was sort of reflect the way the human brain, again, rightly or wrongly, quickly makes a determination about this person yeah. seems interesting to me or not. That could be, you know, everybody has different criteria for what does that, but it, but it happens subconsciously. And I think one of the reasons Tinder worked as well as did is because the product, the early product represented the way the human brain functions. Yeah. The other thing that Tinder did was create a blind double opt-in system, which of course now is the standard where I can swipe right on someone, somebody can swipe right on me and only then does it create a match. And um, so th those were like two sort of native Tinder innovations. And obviously it made it very graphic and mobile. And, and the other thing that it did was allow you to start, basically create a profile and start swiping in like 90 seconds which was very different, very, very mm -hmm. different than Match before it, but also very different than OkCupid, which had a series of questions that you would answer to inform, you know, its algorithm. Tinder very quickly could get you downloading and swiping, and that, again, addresses the 1824 demo in many respects. And so mm -hmm. I think it's really those three innovations that drove the core initial growth, and, and it was really a brilliantly conceived product, I think, out of the gate in that, for, in that sense. Yeah. And importantly, such a differentiated product to your point, it's like it was so different than what came before and aimed at a different market. And, and it had all that viral growth, but then, so you joined in 2014, kind of as the hockey stick was starting to take off. Um, but then you had to figure out how to, how to monetize it. So, so you were actually there for a lot of these conversations around monetization, right? And that, that's right. something I'm really curious about because, I mean, famously, one of the, the biggest subscription apps and early subscription app success. Um, how, how did y'all think internally about taking this free product that, had, that was differentiated, that clearly had you know, kind of product market fit, that um, was growing hockey stick? I mean, it's just such an amazing place to be. And now you're going to like charge people. <laughs> yeah, that must have been some some pretty crazy internal debates about how to actually monetize it. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And I, just to set the scene, by the way, so you think back to 2014, the the product is starting to, you know, the product's starting to work for sure. Um, it's still early days of the company. I think when I joined, we had under 20 people. So wow, it's still very early days. And, and what, like eight, 10 million monthly active users? Like 
I don't remember the MAU at that point. I mean, I, I also, by the way, I never know what I should say and not say. Uh, so I'm going <laughs> oh, yeah. to just not quote MAU. But it was, yes. I mean, it, yeah, we had, we quickly got to a like um, user liquidity, at least in certain geographies. Yeah. And also remember the Tinder was effectively created inside of Match Group. It's a bizarre and unique, very unique story that I still have trouble figuring out what a parallel is to it. And, and I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole, but just for context, you know, Match Group is the is the dominant company. It also owns OKCupid at this time. So that sort of the two incumbents exist within the same company as the quote unquote disruptor. And it and because Tinder was free, so you had all this mind share and all these users going to Tinder, the free product. And then you had the cash generators of the of the parent company wondering what what is happening and how do we bridge this gap? And so you had an internal dynamic around monetizing Tinder that that put pressure, I think, on on the early Tinder folks that I think rightfully we resisted for the right amount of time. So so like that's mm. the first piece. The first piece is I think we let the company become a company. And and I, I, I say we, but I give credit to many of the people at Tinder at the time in, in doing that and to management at, at Match Group in allowing that to happen. Then we got to a point where, OK, you know, we've got liquidity, we've got product market fit. Let's figure out how to monetize this. The, the fortunate part is like online dating is one of those businesses where, you know, if you get to, to scale, you can monetize. Like we had the we, we understood the precedent for match. We understood the precedent from OkCupid. We knew that, you know, this is one of the pieces of the consumer Internet that consumers are willing to pay for. And this, you know, again, this is back in 2014 when as consumers way less subscriptionized than we are today. Yeah. So we knew that that was a possibility. We wanted to wait until the right time. And it's, it's so interesting, like looking back at the time that that we were debating it, there was a lot of conversation around how upset users would be with us for monetizing the product, how the kind of internal culture of Tinder, you know, would change, had to change to to be not like hesitant to monetize. Because we, you know, I think out of the gate, when you have a free product and then like you now, it, today and again, today is different. And so founders that I think have come along in the last three, four, five years may not actually understand this mentality. But at, at that time, we were worried about monetizing the thing, not because we didn't think it would perform, but because we thought once somebody sees a paywall in Tinder, mm -hmm. what, you know, after they've been using it for however many, you know, however, however many months at this point, you know, for free, what would their reaction be? And it wasn't like everything was out of the gate monetized sort of more the way it is today. And so we had to like coach the internal team around a mindset of monetization. Mm -hmm. And that is um, looking backwards, almost funny, but but at the time was a, a very serious thing. You know, and we had a lot of conversation around whether we do we make this a subscription business or not. That was a lot of the topic of conversation, obviously, match, OK, keep it both subscription, OK, keep it more, you know, freemium subscription and add ons. And there was a lot of conversation about whether this demo, this 18 to 24 demo, would sign up for a subscription for an online dating product because it was one thing to believe that they would ever get on an online dating product and that we had done. And now the question is, would they pay pay for this? And this is, you know, again, it's pre now it all seems very obvious. Everybody's got subscriptions, yeah. uh, you know, mm -hmm. falling out of their ears. And then it wasn't so obvious. And so we had a lot of debate about that. And um, there were two camps. There was a camp that said we should create a la carte revenue products because that is the way that people are used to paying. And it better matches their expectation. And then we had a, a camp that said subscription is absolutely the way to go. Obviously, that second camp won out. And not only did it win out, as you note, I mean, it, it has become a 
you know, billion dollar plus revenue business over the course of many years. So it it created a foundation for us to build on top that I think had we not done it that way would have made our lives much more difficult. You know, and as you know, it it generating revenue then allowed us to obviously reinvest back into the product and innovate in other ways that were ended up being good for our users. So that that's sort of the but it was a it was a fascinating and very interesting time when when we were in it. When, where, where was this in terms of years? Like what, what about time were you launching this? This was, so we had really started talking about it in 2014 and we, lo- we launched most of it in 2015, mm-hmm. not in every geography and not in like its fullest form, but Tinder plus itself was a 2015 release. Yeah. And you know, it was, and we were, I think we were pretty smart out of the gate about testing it in various ways to ensure that it was resonating and that it was converting the way we thought it might convert. Um, but it was, you know, you're talking 2015, so seven-ish years ago, which is hard to yeah, believe. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's interesting in terms of that getting that young. Well, one thing I wanted to point out, it's very odd to have a technology being dating software that gets adopted by an uh, like an older user base first, and then you're pushing the adoption curve younger. That's a very, yeah. I can't think of too many products that have to force that way. So that's an interesting constraint. Very true. Um, and you wouldn't think about it that way unless you were IAC and you had a portfolio of like hitting those, right? Um, exactly. But then the, 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 the timing is really interesting because that was around the time Apple was like, okay, like we're going to open up subscriptions, right? And this concept of getting that 18 to 24 set subscribing, you know, you might have just hit it at the right time that Apple was like, hey, here's an easy way that these folks, they've, they're buying, they've been buying apps since they were kids, probably. They have some sense of how this works. They have it loaded. It doesn't feel as gross as getting your credit card out and typing your numbers in. Um, and so like, <laughs> right time, right? Like <laughs> there wasn't another moment in history where like that would have all lined up possibly. Listen, I think that's 100% true, both in terms of mobile consumer mobile adoption. You know, just we were still on the upswing. You know, we're still on a meaningful... I mean, obviously the iPhone is... Um, a 2007 product. So it, it had been around, but it was we were still on, very much in the upswing in, do, in adoption. Yeah. And you had the introduction of of very seamless payment, you know, um, software. So it unquestionably is is uh, connected, I think. Do you remember back then um, what some of the early paywalled features were and kind of, I mean, to me, this is like the 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 perennial conversation any subscription app needs to be thinking about and continue thinking about what goes behind the paywall, what's in front of the paywall, or, I mean, you know, for some, it's it's a hard paywall where there's nothing and you have to start a free trial. But most subscription apps now are, are finding some blend of freemium strategy, but it's so hard to 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 figure out what to give away and balance that free to paid and make sure they understand the value they're getting. So I'd love to hear your thoughts and kind of how the team worked through that challenge of figuring out the freemium strategy. Such a great question and something we talked actively about for framing. I, I will frame it this way in terms of like the philosophy I think that we had going into how to how to figure out what to monetize. And I would say a couple one one other framing element. When we looked at the behavior on Tinder. And, and when, when like the, the initial product was created, as we talked about, it had a blind double opt-in system, which is a brilliant way of, of sort of fleshing out mutual interest. The problem with that was not everybody was using it the way that we hoped that they would use it, which is to swipe honestly. Um, and if you were to guess, you would probably guess that guys might be like straight men would be the ones that would use the product differently than you might expect in that they would swipe right a lot. Right. And that, you know, should 
surprise no one. But, but, you know, it's something that we didn't necessarily build for out of the gate. So, so one of the things we did right around the time that we monetized the product was limit the amount of right swipes you could make in a day. And we took a pretty hard hatchet to it. So at the beginning, you know, pre-monetization, you could swipe left and right as many times as you wanted in a given day. But again, that, that had the side effect of creating this sort of, you know, unintended behavior. So what we did is we installed um, a limit on the number of times you could swipe right in a day. That ended up becoming sort of one of the key dividers in the paywall. That's piece number one. Piece number two is the way I think about it, and this is not to uh, minimize the importance of dating in somebody's life, but it's to say when you think about product design and paywall design in a two-sided market like this, I think oftentimes you think about it as like, okay, let's say let's say Tinder is a game, and how do you think about what to charge for or not charge for? Well, what you charge for is things that break the rules of the game. That if everybody were doing them, it would ruin the experience hmm. across the ecosystem. But if a few people were doing them, you would generate revenue and, and it would create an honest balance, a, much, a more honest balance in the ecosystem. And that is how we generally thought, at least in the you know, things have evolved over the course of time, but that is how we generally thought about where to place the paywall and where not to. And I bring that back to the example I gave you before. In swiping right on an unlimited basis, that is not something you want people to be able to do, it turns out. Uh, you know, everybody to be able to do because it creates a a less effective ecosystem for everyone. But when you install a paywall, it makes people think twice about it. And the people that are really high intent that really want to do this, they pay. And that is that's like a, a good paradigm for how to think about it. So, you know, one of the early uh, product elements that went into kind of Tinder Plus was the ability to to break through that limit on the, in the course of a day. Anyway, so that worked uh, very well. The other I'll give you another example is Passport. Passport was a product feature created that allowed you to effectively change your location. So, you know, Tinder, as, as I think everybody knows at this point, is based on a radius of where you are. You know, your, your search radius is limited to kind of some um, proximity to where you are. If we let everyone in the world change their location and be anywhere, it would mean nobody would know who was actually around them, which would then, I mean, and, and remember, the ultimate goal of Tinder is actually for you to get off the product and meet somebody in real life. Mm. So it has, a, you know, I think what I consider a very, you know, ideal aim, again, doesn't always work out that way, but that's the ideal aim of Tinder. That doesn't work if everybody's spread all over the world and you're matching with people that aren't anywhere near you. So passport became an element of the paywall, which is, okay, if somebody actually really wants to do this because they happen to be going on a trip in a few months, or and they want to match with people before they get there, which is a very common use case. That's an okay thing to do. It makes total logical sense to charge for because if everybody, if we gave this to everybody and let everybody do it anytime they wanted, that would hurt the ecosystem. If we had a, a, a percentage of people doing it, it allowed us to generate revenue and flesh out where uh, people had real intent. So those are a couple examples of how we thought about it. And, and I think the paradigm of how we thought about what to place behind the paywall and what to place in front of it. It's really interesting in, when you have a, a system like Tinder, which you describe as a game. I could think it's quite literally, right? Like in some, <laughs> like I'm sure there's a way to represent it as game theory. And uh, there's no question. It just it just matters a lot to people. So I'm very yeah, conscious right. of well, not minimizing. Like it's all a game, you know? <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, it's very different from a lot of the more personal, more isolated 
mobile subscription apps that are generally be content based, right? Like it's a different, it's a whole nother dimension of thinking, right? And actually maybe in some ways simplifies it, right? Because you can kind of decide like what are behaviors we need to like discourage or put behind a a paywall and like you're kind of controlling an ecosystem in some ways or managing an ecosystem versus, uh, you know, some content based meditation app or something of that along those lines uh, where it's, it's, it's a different game. So if you have something like that, that actually maybe in some ways more complicated, but does like uh give you a little bit of guidance in terms of like how can we yeah, how can we how can we use monetization to control to control behavior, which is like it's what the government does, right? Like Yeah, oh, no question. I mean it's it's just it's just straight economic theory at the end of the day. And yeah. look, I think if you're running a con this is I guess maybe I'll put my investor hat on for a minute. If you're running a content based subscription business, then like, listen, it's just it's so much more about, you know, understanding your customer and just raw optimization, right? I mean, that's like, that is just the science around it. We, you know, and, and by the way, there's like many layers to that. We're an investor in a, a, a company named Brilliant, brilliant.org. Um, the founder, Sue, to, I guess you use the word brilliant founder. And this is not even <laughs> one I, I would take credit for. My partner, Sam, has known Sue for decades at this point. Um, but they are a STEM subscription. They're a, they're an, uh, they're a STEM hmm. subscription uh, or education platform that that monetizes through, through subscription. And they have done a brilliant job, to use the word one more time, of <laughs> understanding not just how to place things inside and outside of a paywall so they can take the dollars and reinvest in great content for their users, but also to figure out how best to how to optimize for the user's preference on a subscription period, annual versus quarterly versus monthly, which is a science unto itself. Um, you know, so there are, and that's a, that's just a pure content monetization business. But I think that that one is really just about the product that you have, mm. why people are going to engage, like the, the frequency with which people are going to engage with that product, why they're going to come back to you and how they would prefer to pay you for that. You know, it's, it's really nothing more than that. So, so I think you just need raw analytics and like rapid experimentation to understand, you know, where you fall in that cycle. And you can obviously borrow ideas from other companies, but you know, a lot of it has to do with just rapid experimentation. You're probably less likely to get really fun and interesting unexpected side effects as well, like you would with an environment like Tinder, right? <laughs> like you can't change one little thing. The ripple effects, yeah, the ripple yeah. effect is much <laughs> is much more limited, thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. For better or worse, I suppose. In all that thinking about your customer and the and the monetization strategy, your role was CMO. And one of the things Tinder did really well was to align that user acquisition strategy to that monetization strategy. So what, yeah, what was your thinking as CMO? Like a lot of CMOs aren't quite as deep into the weeds on all of this. So it, it kind of speaks to how you, how y'all operated that you were so in the weeds on the monetization side, but your role was user acquisition. So how did, how did you blend those two and focus acquisition around that monetization strategy? Great question. So what was interesting, I think, about stepping into Tinder when it was like just hitting its inflection point was we remember we were free. We had no monetization at all for a a long period of time. And as a function of that, we were very careful on budgeting. Like we the team collectively did a masterful job of organizing around very efficient channels of awareness. Meaning we understood very quickly that Tinder, because it was a dating product uh, and was mobile and there was this sense that everybody was on it or everybody was going to be on it and there was FOMO around not being on it. We understood very quickly that the press would cover a variety of things about the company or about the product. 
And you know, not, not every single day, not a, not a sort of daily drumbeat, but if we could create sort of a periodic drumbeat of information that we could stay in the media. And we had looked, by the way, to OkCupid before it, which had... Mm-hmm you know, a freemium product and therefore a limited marketing budget and figured out how through very data driven blogs. I think they invented that actually, didn't they? Like, I don't know of anybody who did it before them. No, no, I, I think that's right. And they wrote a very data driven blog that the press and oftentimes the results would be controversial. And they said, we're just going to publish the results. And the press would pick that up and write about it. Some would say, look at the look at this craziness that OkCupid is is you know you know they OkCupid did a blog on whether its own users were racist based on the data as an example so like very mm-hmm. controversial I think that's when I remember being exposed to it wow. right exactly very controversial so we so we we sort of knew that we had learned from that playbook or observed that playbook and we sort of knew that if we and then and that exact approach didn't make sense for Tinder but there were th- approaches that did and we figured out how to kind of leverage media on a on a global basis actually just because there is a bit of an echo chamber in the world of media that if you know one writes a story, it can get picked up and and moved out. And we very quickly understood, I think, how to how to handle that, both the marketing and the PR teams. And so we would go down that road. And then I think, you know, when it came to like connecting monetization to marketing, when we introduced Superlike as an example, which is a uh, a paid feature that allows you again, it's fascinating. Like I think a brilliantly conceived product feature that allows you to set, you know, by default gives you, gave users one super like a day. So I can swipe left and right as I would like throughout the day. I get one super like a day by default to send to somebody. And that has, again, these, these sort of the consequence, as long as people understand it, of the recipient knowing that, okay, somebody used their one, one a day super like on me. And it moves you to the top of the stack and all these things. And so, again, a brilliantly conceived product. But the key was that the recipient needed to understand that mm-hmm. there was only one a day. And so we actually created both a marketing campaign around it, but also a, a, that that went outside of the Tinder product. But also, we actually effectively created a branded uh, profile that we could introduce into the product that would market the product features that gave marketing f- basically a connection into the actual product, which we didn't really have before. I mean, it all sounds like easy in hindsight, but the reality right. is like when I got to Tinder, because things had happened so quickly, there were there was very little data. There, like we we did not have a good organization of data. We did not really have hooks between marketing and product at all. So, and we did not have lifecycle marketing at all. We did not have CRM mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> I mean, other than like something hard coded somewhere in the product sure. that basically told you when you got a match. <laughs> that was like it. And so wow. we had to do like you know we had to hire. We had to do a lot of work to get those things in line. And when it came to introducing Super, like we leveraged those things to get the message out to users that then drove you know, the recipient to understand this is a, a once a day thing, it made it special. And as long as they understood it, it would perform for the users that sent the super like, meaning their match rate would go up as a function of sending a super like, and that would drive then further monetization because we introduced super like as a, as an a la carte feature on top of our subscription eventually that allowed you to buy more super likes. Um, and so all of those things got connected and all of those things worked very, very closely with one another. But it all started, it all required education of the users to understand it, both on the sender and the recipient side of the equation. Wow. Yeah. It, it, Tinder's monetization has always been so fascinating to me. And it, it's all starting to make sense now when you think about it from that kind of game theory perspective of like super like is breaking the rules and that makes sense why that's a paid feature uh the profile boost is kind of breaking the rules you get more attention right. than you otherwise would that's a paid feature 
Um, and I haven't looked at the at the paywall recently, but but yeah, framing in that context, it's just so brilliant and makes so much sense how that kind of strategy evolved over time. On the data piece, it, it's interesting because y- y'all were operating at a time when you know things like Revenue Cat didn't exist. Braze was probably like just getting off the ground. Talking to your portfolio companies today that are trying to ramp up subscriptions, do you do you think it's like much easier today, or like what? How would you advise folks differently? Kind of having gone through the slog of 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 not having tools and and things like that available to you at the time. Yeah, it's a great question. I'll tell I'll tell you a quick funny story about the lack of tools that we had and the and the result the result of that. We sort of invented a product at at some point which was called Swipe Surge, which you know because we observed we found once we understood the data. We understood that the more people that were on Tinder at any given time, the the higher the collective match rate got, meaning it, it's it's very logical, but we wanted to prove it out in data. If you're you know sitting in, I'm sitting in Los Angeles, if, if a bunch of people all of a sudden jo- get on Tinder in Los Angeles, everybody's match rate actually goes up collectively because everybody's there swiping actively. And so, you know, you're seeing more recent matches, you're engaging more, mm. you know, um, et cetera. So, it makes sense. We saw it in the data. And then we sort of created this product called Swipe Search, which would do that on an automatic basis, meaning it would let you know when there was a lot of activity in your area because it was good. If your goal on Tinder was to match with somebody, then that would increase your odds just by default, by the activity alone would increase your odds. We didn't have a lot of you know products that exist today. And this was a, a, a sort of marketing product sort of hybrid uh, approach. So I, I and another guy who's uh, named Jeff Morris, who now has a venture fund and went, has gone on, spent a lot of time on revenue product at Tinder and did on when has gone on to do many great things and run his, runs his own venture fund. Jeff Morris and I uh, set up to sort of initiate Swipe Surge, and by accident we sent it to everyone, meaning we <laughs> we meant to test it in a geography or two to to initiate a test in, in a geography or two. But we unlocked it somehow across all geographies. And so, you know, it still worked the way it should, meaning there was swipe surge happening, but it went to every geography and we crashed Tinder. It was <laughs> we had a an amazing increase in daily actives as a function of that. But we also we accidentally crashed the system and we got uh, we got a lecture from the ops team that day. Um, but anyway, <laughs> I think had we had more robust tools, these things would have been easier. But. But a, I mean, I guess a successful experiment. I mean, you can still do that with a robust tool. I've seen it. So don't there's worry. no question. But yeah, we, we sort of <laughs> late night in the office one day accidentally went went rogue. You're not running a consumer product if you haven't DDoSed yourself. That's fair. That's, that's fair enough. Of, that's fair <laughs> enough. Or you're not running a successful consumer product if you haven't DDoSed yourself. If your ops team is not yelling at you every so often, you're probably not pushing <laughs> pushing hard enough. So um, anyway, when I look at our when I look at companies today, we look at it, we have a bunch of subscription companies in our portfolio. When I look at, you know, I, I talk to new ones all the time. Look, I think um, there was a period of time where I think everybody was trying to turn everything into subscription. And I found myself giving feedback very frequently when I was meeting with founders that like this is just not a subscription. But like subscription mm-hmm. is, as you guys have covered in your podcast over and over, it's a beautiful business if you can get it right like it's beautiful it's the <laughs> revenue rolls in it's recurring it's predictable it's all the things so there was like this overcorrection i think when people saw that and were like oh this is great yeah. you know i don't need to deal with rebuying my customers uh but it went too far like i looked at subscription for you know purses and for you know like things that oh yeah especially in the physical world right like the like some of the stuff got crazy for a while some of the stuff got totally crazy Exactly. And yeah. we and we have we have been lucky in that we have we have back founders that have figured out that model. Like we one of our portfolio companies is a company pretty litter. 
And it's a subscription cat litter that is also also health detecting. So it's innovative in that if the cat pees on it and one of a few things is wrong with the cat, it will change color. So it's like it's an innovative product. It was also crystal based, 80% lighter traditional litter. It shipped very cost effectively. And the founder, Daniel Rotman, did just a remarkable job building a subscription business on the back of it. The, the reason, though, he was able to do it is because litter is almost the perfect subscription product. It is predictable yeah. consumption, right? Exactly predictable consumption. The next the one bag shows up, you throw out the old yeah. thing and you're off. Phys- I'm thinking of physical good subscriptions I have that I've kept is like my lunches and uh, coffee. Because exactly yeah. that. I, I eat five lunches a week and I drink coffee seven times a week. <laughs> that's exactly right. No, no that, that's what I'm saying. So when the, when the consumption is not variable, subscription works extremely well. When the consumption is variable or unpredictable, it works horribly bad. And mm. um, and you see this, by the way, in the data with like, you know, some of the food subscription businesses that are more like meal kit prep. Yeah, I mean, it's variable, right? Like you have a week, you just can't do it. And then the whole thing falls apart. And then what right? do you do? You go into your fridge, you take out this big st- stack of food that you have to now throw away. There's a special sound that rings in your ears when you hear it dump in your trash can. <laughs> Just sadness. That's well said. Yeah, exactly. Um, so anyway, I think we went through that period. And I think we've come out of it pretty well in that I don't I don't I get less of that now. But I but I think like there's still a hesitancy, I think, to monetize early for companies that I think the current I, I suspect the current venture market, which has you know, as of the time that we're recording this, I suppose, so we'll market for posterity, has really <laughs> turned around, meaning it is, you know, it was very high flying for a while. We're early stage investors at Corazon Capital. So we do, you know, we'll do, there's nothing too early for us. We'll do pre-C, we'll do C, we just want to have conviction in something. So we haven't seen a lot of this yet because we're not, we're not doing kind of growth stage, but it's coming and the, the like reconciliation is coming. And so, you know, profit is effectively the new growth. So, so for a while, companies wanted to grow so fast that they didn't want to think about monetizing their product or were worried to do it or just didn't prioritize it on the roadmap. And I think we're coming out of that. I think what's going to happen mm-hmm. now is people are going to really have to think about delivering value in a subscription. If, it, if you're running a subscription business, value early because it's much cheaper to fund your growth from your customers than it is from the venture market. And that wasn't always true because the venture market cost of capital used to be very low and is now very high all of a sudden and is, and is increasing still. So I think, you know, companies that are starting today really need to think about that. And then the other thing I would say is there oftentimes the thing I see is that the marketing strategy is totally disconnected and economics are totally disconnected from this pure monetization of the product. Meaning we see pitch decks all the time that have a lifetime value that when, you know, of uh, whatever, five-year lifetime value where it's not really a lifetime value because it's just GMV. And you're, you know, you're taking whatever, a 1% take rate, a 10% take rate. So your lifetime value is actually 1% or 10% of the number you're showing me. And so I always encourage startups to really think very honestly about what your lifetime value of a customer is in terms of gross profit contribution, and also be very thoughtful on your payback period. Like, you know, we see a lot of pitches that have a lifetime value of big numbers, but it turns out like you're not going to get paid back for two years. And so your working capital cycle has a massive deficit to it. Like you, you will, you will run out of cash every like three months because you're funding acquisition. You're putting out a dollar into the Facebook and, and Google machine and you don't get the dollar back for two years. So like, I think that is a, that is a place where I see a lot of disconnect very often. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, I would take you back to the world of online dating. Okay. Cupid knew they didn't have knew they had a freemium product and they knew they were you know converting a percentage of those users into paid subscribers and so they had a marketing you know their marketing budget was nothing they they it was their brains they would write 
a blog. At Tinder, in the early days before we monetized, we were very careful on marketing spend because we knew we didn't have real profit. But you know, companies for a number of years have focused on growth and not on profit. And I think they've got to move back in the other direction at this point. Well, as a as a pre-seed, like very first, probably first money in, right? Like investor, are you as a as a B2C founder, it can be very hard to get those numbers down without some amount of, you know, play money, right? Like you have to spend some money to figure that <laughs> no stuff question. out. Do you think do you think founders should be in this environment, and yeah, by the time this goes out, maybe the environment's different. But uh, do you think in this environment they should be trying? Because I've 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 worked with um, you know subscription app founders who are like super super early who are like we're trying to get our LTV CAC, and I'm like, hey, just get some subscribers and talk to them. Like, let's do that first, right? Do you think right. that 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 should move earlier? Even like people should be doing this like in the first like couple hundred subscribers kind of stage or how does how do you actually navigate that as a founder in the very early stages so so it's a it's a great question it's a great nuance too there are certain businesses for which the question of whether people will eventually pay you for this thing are not really a question again i would put tinder in that category we like we knew if we got to like user liquidity people would pay us how much would they pay us what percent would convert those are variables for sure whether they would pay us we had precedent that we looked to and said, we know that people are willing to, consumers are willing to pay for this. There are other businesses that are inventing things where the idea that people will pay you for them is not inevitable. And for those businesses, I would argue that they need to tackle like the question of whether people are willing to pay you for this thing early, very early. Because mm-hmm. if they're not, then you're going to kick the can down the road and eventually somebody will figure out that no one's willing to pay you for this. And you know, either that's going to be the market or it's going to be you, but either way, it's you not. You can make a lot of metrics go up before you get to that one not being able to, right? That's exactly right. So I think, you know, again, like I think, um, I think it depends on the business, but if you have like absolute certainty that eventually, that if that the thing you need to accomplish is whatever, you need this much of a library of content or you need this many users on the in the market or whatever. And then once you hit that point that people will pay, if you have ultimate confidence in that, then you know what? Like I'm with you, get raise what you need to build to the thing that allows you to then monetize. If you don't have confidence in that, you know, raise what you need to start to deliver a monetized product because shielding yourself from the inevitable question of whether somebody will pay you is very harmful to a founder. I mean, it's just a very dangerous place to be. And like, I try to be like very direct and candid with founders because they're the ones putting their entire lives into this. Like, you know, I don't have to tell you, like it is, insanely hard work. Like we, you know, being a founder gets glorified because there's winner's bias and whatever, but it is very hard. We made $90 in the first six months. It was great. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) It's, it's extremely hard. And so I try to just be honest with founders and just tell them what I think they are probably a little bit scared to hear, but that is like the reality of the situation. Cause like, I don't want to see the worst thing is like when you see a founder that is like putting their entire life into something that you just know is not going to, not going to be able to succeed. And of course, they're going to learn things from that and everything else. But boy, if I can save them six months, either by saying this is not going to work and I'm going to do something else or by saying, here's the fundamental question you should answer now, like that, that is what I, whether we invest in a company or not, like that is what I try to do every single time as an investor. It's a convenience of the time we're in going back to the tooling thing that the the data and support tooling has compressed and become more accessible because in 10 years ago, it was much more like the Tinder path, like, hey, get get active users, right, on something we know you can monetize later was very much the advice I'd heard at the time. Now you have access to, you know, the the acquisition through Facebook and, you know, many, many more tools to do what you were doing 
you know, post scaling at Tinder with a big team and you were building tooling and all this stuff. Now you can do as a team of two or three founders, right? If you're technical, um, and and that has probably changed structurally just how this whole thing, probably for the better, right? Because we can we can skip some of that guesswork. It's a great observation. The amount you're able to do now without the number of employees required, or or said differently, the revenue per employee in some of the companies that I've seen is like, is oh, yeah. remarkable. I mean, Pretty Litter's revenue per employee was extremely, extraordinarily high. So it, you know, as an example. So um, yeah, the efficiency that these tools have created is just frankly remarkable. Which, I mean, means the whole system's kind of working, right? Like capitalism in general. Like <laughs> we're building better tools, making it cheaper. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I think, and now the, the flip side of that is the like world of iOS 14 as it relates mm. to, um, as it relates to like acquisition has really put a put a dent in the the acquisition ecosystem in consumer companies. I mean, in all companies, but consumer especially. And it just for maybe people that don't understand, iOS 14 came out very privacy focused, sort of killed a lot of the tracking that especially Facebook has uh, that then gets reported back to the companies that enables them to to understand how their marketing is performing for just in very basic terms. What we ba- what we basically saw as we looked at companies across, you know, the ecosystem is almost all of them had an immediate spike, in, me- meaningful spike in cost of acquisition of a customer, mm-hmm. and some of them so much so that you know, and and I, I bring it back the companies that were playing this game of oh we're like our payback period is two years and like we're really thin on margin and we'll worry about profit later. Those companies got really hosed. They went upside yeah. down very fast because. They had assumed a cost of acquisition that was here, that was at one level, and it was much higher almost overnight, and it exceeded the gross profit they were ever going to make on their customers. And so it really has, I think, that also started to force, you know, especially consumer companies to think a bit differently. And and I think it's actually in some respects lucky that it predated this like bubble bursting in the venture market because it for, it has forced companies to some extent to think differently and to be more disciplined. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had we this last year when all this was going down, we had a bunch of folks and talked about the technical aspects of it. And kind of we at the time, what sounded like a very doomsday prediction, which was like an app store recession, essentially, yep. uh, felt like a little bit a ch- sky is felt chicken little. Uh, but I, I mean, we haven't done like a broad based study of our data, but like anecdotally, it's kind of what happened. Like um, the, a lot of businesses that were on the bubble just can't exist now. And maybe you're right. Like maybe it was. You know, we were in a time with the fundraising market and potentially with the like tooling we had where there was just like a class of business that could exist that wasn't durable, really, really all that durable. Yep, I think that's right. And then the durable companies are having trouble scaling as fast as they were in the pre-ATT market. Yeah, well, it's not helpful for them either. <laughs> I don't think it helped right. anybody. No, no, it, it hurts everybody. And and I listen, I would also say it has become harder, I think, to get a D2C company really off the ground into scale because the because the pipes have gotten so crowded and you have iOS 14 and everything else. And so it is not the easiest thing in the world to pull that off, meaning the tools have gotten more efficient, but the trade-off in everything getting more efficient is like the pipes get really crowded and you, yeah. you know, your, your competition goes up. And you also have to like really think deeply about the raw cost of acquisition relative to your subscription. You know, if you're going to run a subscription business, the value that you're creating on the other end and that and really be honest with yourself about churn. And remember, by the way, that your cost of acquisition is just going to go up like that is the thing. Like people, I think all the time, make flawed assumptions about being able to hold cost of acquisition somewhere. And 
you know, when I look at companies that have done really well, what they have figured out how to do is move LTV of a customer higher in lockstep with cost of acquisition. Like that is the I game. see. So like Calm or whatever, the, the late stage ones. Calm is an example. You know, like the companies that do really well figure out what are the product features I can add to either retain customers at a higher rate or charge more money or whatever to drive my lifetime value higher so that when my, when my cost of acquisition comes up, I'm still holding whatever ratio I need to hold. It's interesting because you would think there'd be with brand and things like this, that there would be some efficiencies, but they probably get wiped out just in the fact that you're always going to buy the easiest to buy users first, right? There is unquestionably a brand element to it, but I think people mix up brand and product a lot, meaning like there are plenty of brand, like things that I subscribe to and I like what they're doing, but if all of a sudden they changed what they were doing and sold and sent me like crappy products, I'm just going to can't as much as I like the brand, I'm still going to cancel the, the subscription like I, you know, so brand, yes, but it really is product first. Like I, 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 I think that is the way to think about it. and And that is sort of as it should be. I mean, this is capitalism. Like, you yeah. know, you, you nobody keeps their calm subscription if they're not really using it or intending to use it. Right. Even as much as they like LeBron James. That's exactly <laughs> right. I could listen to LeBron. I mean, I grew up in Cleveland, so I could listen to LeBron James all day long. But, you know, if I get in a calm thing and like all of a sudden it's like some offensive recording um, or something like that. I'm just going to, you know, I'll just cancel it yeah, as much as right. I like calm. Yeah. And uh, to switch gears, because we are we are kind of wrapping up on time. I, I did want to get the, the you kind of touched on it a little bit, but I want to hear more about, give us the elevator pitch since we're, we only got a couple minutes left of course and capital. Um, and then are you currently accepting pitches and how would, how would people get in touch with you for that? Uh, yes, we, every, every day is the answer to the question. Um, <laughs> look, we, Corazon uh, Capital is on its third fund. We closed a fund, $134 million fund in November of last year that we started investing in January of this year. We are very much ex-operators turned investors, as you probably can tell from the conversation. And that's just the way we think about yeah. companies. And, you know, unsurprisingly, we tend to invest in things that we understand and know how to do. Uh, we feel, we feel like that's where we can be most helpful to founders. So that includes... Marketplaces, subscription businesses, D2C, e-com. Um, we do do some B2B as long as we can really understand the pain point uh, that it's solving and, and really understand the end actual the actual customer. So that's what we do. We're early stage. We invest generally on a uh, we're, we're early stage and we're high conviction. So we'll invest enough to own eight to ten percent on a first check because I think our founders, I think because we come from the operating world, want to spend time with us. And if you spread yourself too thin, you can't spend time, you can't spend meaningful time with anybody. So that is how we, that's just how we do things. Um, you know, we, we are, like I said, more consumer than B2B, uh, but we do do both. Uh, how do people get in touch with us? LinkedIn is probably the easiest way, to be honest. You know, we're actively investing and there's nothing too early. I think for us, it's a matter of getting conviction on, on founder, market and product. Really actually in that order. You know, and if it's a space that we, if it's like a business model that we understand, a space that we understand, we'll get conviction, even if it's a, a PowerPoint deck. Um, so it's not, you know, we're happy to go, we're happy to go really early. Uh, yeah, I, I was mentioning before the call that, that the fact that there, there are not that many, well, two things. One, there are not that many early stage funds that focus on subscription consumer exclusively or are very focused. So like that's pretty unique. And then also run by operators, I think is, is always nice to have. I think in general, as you know, if anybody considering taking venture capital, like you don't have to exclusively raise from folks who've operated businesses, but that's where you're going to get the most additional leverage out of, um, you know, selling off some, some equity. So, um, definitely the right kind of, uh, 
folks to ads. <laughs> yeah, no, listen, I think, well, I appreciate you saying that. I think, look, I, I don't know there's a right or wrong way to get into venture. This is just the way that we know how to do, th- this is what we've done and how we know how to do things. And I think to your point, to me, if I'm like advising a founder, whether it's us or somebody else, having people that actually fundamentally understand what you're building and can roll up their sleeves and help you like, it's it's all very easy when things are up and to the right, but when things go wrong, like who do you text? Like who do you call? Because you're you're if it's a non-operator investor, they don't really want to get that text from you. So, you know, whereas like, you know, we've been in the trenches, like things go wrong all the time. And I always advise founder, again, whether it's us or somebody else, just be thoughtful about like who, how you construct your cap table and never underestimate the like duration of the marriage that you're entering into. Especially for pre-seed, right? Like those are the people you spend the most time with if you're successful. hundred percent, hundred percent. So like think about, just think deeply about you know, who you want on the cap table and what compliments they provide. And everybody can, you know, I love the early stage because it's pretty collaborative generally. I mean, much more so than the later stage as, a, as like a venture community. And so we think all the time about how, you know, how we can construct a syndicate for a company that is like one plus one equals three. So we play the role that we play as like X operators and very tactical, but we have, you know, funds that we'd like to work with that play different roles. Well, I wish we had you for another hour because there's so much more we could talk about. But uh, with that, we do need to wrap up. Thank you so much for for your time today. So many fascinating uh, conversations and things to learn from. So thanks, Phil, for being on the podcast. It was my pleasure. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.